0: Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Luke tells us, Luke 4.20, he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down in all "...of the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." With these words, Jesus' ministry, his mission in his first coming was well underway. Officially, the, the scripture here is fulfilled fulfilled because of the personification of Salvation. You can say that about Jesus. He is the personification of salvation. Jesus' name in the Hebrew, many of you know, Yeshua is the Hebrew word for salvation. And so salvation came not just as a concept, not just as an idea, not even just as an offering, but salvation came as a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. But he stopped midway through this prophecy, this three verse song, what we've called the servant song, the fifth servant song. Jesus stops midway through because that was the extent of the mission of his first coming. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. To usher that in, to say now is the time. Up until now there have been various dispensations. The most recent one prior to that was the law. And you had to keep the law, and all the law did was highlight how sinful people really were. Jesus comes on the scene and says, "Now are the days of grace. Now forgiveness is freely offered to anyone who simply believes in me, who will trust me for your freedom, trust me for your salvation." And so he ushers in the favorable year of the Lord, and we are still in those days. We're still at the comma. You know, right in the middle of the prophecy, awaiting The next part. Because the second time he's coming, he's not coming with immediate favor. He is coming with inescapable vengeance. And this part of the prophecy is the part that many people have trouble with. In fact, a lot of pastors, myself among them, don't really like to talk about this. But the very next sentence in Isaiah's prophecy is, "...and the day of vengeance of our God." I'm really down with the favorable year of the Lord. You know, I love the idea. And, and it is so encouraging and exciting. It lifts up my heart to think these are days of grace. These are days of favor. But the day of the vengeance of our God. This is not something you typically take door knocking. Well, i like to invite you to come to our church because we are just about to the days of vengeance. <laughs> We're very close to the whole hell thing. And this is something that we just we don't want to talk about. The day of vengeance, Hebrew nacham, and nacham means justified retribution. Understand that. It's a very specific word in the Hebrew. Vengeance is justified retribution. It's punishment deserved. It is a vengeance given because it has been earned. Because it is right and good and just. Many of the ancient prophets warned of this disastrous day. They talked about the fact that this day would come. In fact, the earliest prophecy we even have on record describes the day of the vengeance of our God. Jude 14. Referring back to the prophet Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. And by the way, you should do the math sometime. Do you know that Adam was still alive in the days of Enoch? In fact, Adam was alive all the way through the life of Lamech, or at least into the life of Lamech, who was the father of Noah. All of those ten generations, Adam was there. And so, Noah's dad knew the first man. It's that tight, if you go back and read it and study it. Well, Enoch comes along in the seventh generation from Adam, And he begins to prophesy. He was a prophet. In fact, he named his son Methuselah. Because Methuselah means in his death it shall come. And guess what? Methuselah died and the flood came. So Enoch we know was a prophet, and Jude tells us in the seventh generation from Adam, he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Now people can say, well, Enoch the prophet prophesied of the flood. The problem with that is that Enoch said, The Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Not speaking of the first time of judgment in the flood, but the second time of judgment, the day of vengeance of our God. So, in the first prophecy we have written down, we have this day of vengeance spoken of. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 6 says, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Which I think makes every man in the barn this morning shudder. He says, why do I see every man pale, his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. Or some of you have heard, Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved from it. Ezekiel the prophet, chapter 30, verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord God, Wail! Alas for the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. The day of the Lord is coming. How long is the day of the Lord? Well, let's put it this way. As we talked about Wednesday, the favorable year of the Lord has lasted 2,000 years. The day of the vengeance of our God is coming. But comparatively, it will be like a day to 2,000 years. Or like a day to a year. The favorable year and the day. Because God would far rather give grace. It is the heart of God to give as much opportunity. That's why we're still here. As much opportunity for people to be saved and to see Jesus and to know Jesus as possible. Holding out to the last possible second before the day of vengeance must come and will come, and we'll talk about why in a second. Daniel and the book of Revelation give the day of vengeance a seven-year time frame. And you can go back and study those things and think them through. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, Revelation actually 6 through 19 talks about all this and dates it. Revelation chapter 12 specifically talks about the last half, three and a half years of this day of vengeance. So we know roughly how long it is, you know, seven years. But the day itself, Joel the prophet, chapter 2, verse 1, says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound my alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it. Nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A day of the Lord... The day of the vengeance of our God, Zephaniah, probably more than all the others, Zephaniah's entire prophecy focuses in on the day of the Lord, the vengeance of our God. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming quickly. Why why hasn't it come yet? If Zephaniah says that, you know, several hundred years before Jesus came, it's near, it's very near, but it hasn't come yet. Why? Because God is a patient God. And the only reason it has not come yet is God's patience that people might be saved. And in every generation, God looking to see and knowing there are those who will be lost without faith in Jesus. And so He waits. And He waits and He waits, hoping and waiting. Waiting and hoping for maybe your decision this morning. Zephaniah says, listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung the day of vengeance in the word of God and it's coming I can guarantee it is coming why can you guarantee that because every single prophecy of the first coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled specifically and literally and perfectly and so this will be as well Why is it coming? It's coming against every crime of humanity. From day one to now, to the moment He comes, every crime of humanity, both against humanity, but also against humanity's Creator. Because something we don't often think about is when I sin against a person, I am sinning against God. David understood that. Read Psalm 51 sometimes. He says, My sin was not against anybody but you, Lord. And I'm thinking, Well, okay, Uriah ended up dead. Bathsheba, you know, ended up David's wife and in an adulterous affair, and David's covering all this up, and there are people hurt and affected. The entire nation would be affected by David's sin. David says, Against you only have I sinned, O Lord. Because everything we do that hurts another person is something we have actually done against the Lord. Crimes of humanity. But people hear this. And they think, doesn't vengeance seem to be an Old Testament idea? I mean, really, it's kind of an Old Testament concept, an Old Testament vengeful God type of thing. And I would answer that two ways. I would say, number one, you don't know the God of the Old Testament if you think he's vengeful. Number two, he's the same God who's here today and has waited 2,000 years to do anything. The same God of grace. And if you go through, as we have done over the last several years, and walk through the Hebrew Scriptures, through the Torah, you find out God is a God of grace and mercy, always has been, always will be. And it is a flat-out misunderstanding to say that the Old Testament God is a God of vengeance. Because you see, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are the same. A lot of well-meaning people want to keep Christ at the comma, you know? I'm going to keep him right there in the favorable year and not go beyond that. They're thankful he doesn't continue reading it. In fact, as a young pastor, I was thankful. I love to teach out of Luke chapter 4 because Jesus stopped and didn't continue on. And I hope no one would go over and look at Isaiah 61 and find out the very next thing after the favorable year is the day of vengeance. I didn't want to talk about that. But we need to understand something. As much as people love to keep the baby in the manger... much as people love to keep the child in the temple or the shepherd with the lamb or the teacher by the sea, we need to understand something about Jesus in His second coming. This bringer of vengeance, treading out the grapes of wrath, is Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah 63. Just look over a page there. Isaiah 63, verse 1. And we'll study this in a couple of weeks or perhaps even this Wednesday night. Who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, answers this one. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their life blood is sprinkled on my heart or, or is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. Who's this? Who's doing the talking? Keep your finger there and turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. You're going to need two or three fingers this morning because we're going to do a little page turning right here. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with, note this, a robe dipped in blood. And it's not his blood. It's the blood we just read about in Isaiah 63. And his name is called the Word of God. And we know who that is. That's Jesus. We know that because John opens up. Same John who wrote Revelation opens up his Gospel and says, In the word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John 1.14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. And the armies which are in heaven clothed them fine, linen, white, and clean were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it He may strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He treads, note this, He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And in John's revelation, He ties right back to Isaiah 63 and He says, This one whose whose raiment is stained as with grapes," And that's a shocking thing. Think about it. You see this one coming up and his robe is all stained red. You say, have you been in the wine press? How come there's red all over your robe? It looks like you've been stomping on grapes. What's the deal? And he says, no, this is not grape juice. This is blood. And it's the blood of all those who set themselves against me. Keep your finger in Revelation 19 and go back to Matthew 24. Back to the left and just kind of keep going left because eventually you're going to hit Matthew. Matthew. Matthew 24. Keeping that finger in Revelation 19 because we're going to jet right back to it. Jesus now Himself speaking. And Jesus says... Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Jesus time stamps what he's about to say. He speaks of the midpoint of the tribulation, of the day of the vengeance of our God. Very clearly. I can't go into all the reasons why. Other than to say what Jesus describes in verse 15 and 16 has not happened, did not happen in A.D. 70, for those who think that's what he was talking about. He ties it in, this abomination of desolation, this abominable thing that will happen in the temple that marks the midpoint of the tribulation. And then Jesus says, after saying when this is happening, he says, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as, not had, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show them great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And note this, the elect is Israel here. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, He's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, He's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The Son of Man. Jesus talking about Himself. Here's My coming. And listen to how He frames this. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Where the corpse is, Jesus? There the vultures will gather. What does that mean? Look back now at Revelation 19. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice saying, Do all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Listen again to what Jesus said. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures or the eagles will gather. What is Jesus talking about? I believe exactly what the angel calls out at the end of Revelation 19, the Great Supper of God. Because that is the end result of the coming of the Son of Man, of the return of Jesus. Though He cried out, Fulfilled is the favorable year of the Lord. We need to know the day of the vengeance of our God is His day. Jesus' day. And He will fulfill that day Just as beautifully as He fulfilled the favorable year of the Lord. Picking up where He left off, Jesus is coming back to finish what He started. Now go back to Isaiah 61. In His second coming begins with something. I'm going to give you three things if you want to jot down notes on this. The first one is His second coming begins with a godly vengeance. A godly vengeance. And note that the day is called the day of vengeance of our God. It's the day of vengeance of our God. What does that tell us? Well, first off, it tells us this is God's vengeance, not the enemy's vengefulness. Note the difference. Don't confuse God's vengeance with Satan's vengefulness. God's vengeance is justified retribution. It is an earned thing. Humanity, having rejected God and rebelled against God, has earned every ounce of the wrath of God that will be poured out. It is justified. Satan's vengefulness is just unjust bitterness and spite. Very different approach to humanity. Jesus says the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, John 10.10. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Satan is out to revile. He is out to spite. He is out to discourage and destroy and to bring bitterness among brothers and sisters in Christ if he can. But certainly in the world, wherever he can. It is day 1021 of Pastor Yusuf Nardakani's imprisonment in Iran. Were you aware of that? Perhaps you heard in, in recent months, Pastor Youssef was thrown into prison. He's sitting on death row. He has a death sentence right now. And the only reason he hasn't been executed yet is because there is a great deal of pressure on Iran. International pressure that needs to remain. And you can be part of that, by the way. Pastor Youssef Nardakani, his name, N-A-D-A-R-K-H-A-N-I. And you might want to look that up and see how can I be praying for him? How can I lend my voice to what's happening? But this man is in prison in Iran because he's a Christian pastor and he was teaching the gospel. That's all he was doing. And so he's in prison for it on death row. And the same type of thing that we have seen in history in the early church its happening all over the world right now. The persecution against Christians who are simply teaching the truth is intensifying Well, at least it's not happening here in America. Well, he may not be sitting on death row, but Dan Caffey of Chick-fil-A is certainly taking a lot of heat these days, isn't he? The chief operating officer of Chick-fil-A, who all he said, go back and look, all he said was he supported traditional marriage. He was not in support of homosexual marriage. That's all he said. And the backlash has been intense. And Chicago, the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel is saying, Chicago doesn't feel the same way that Chick-fil-A does. And they're trying actually to boot Chick-fil-A out of Chicago. They're trying to boycott Chick-fil-A simply because the chief operating officer, by the way, it's a family-run business, he's Baptist, the whole uh, history of Chick-fil-A is a Christian upbringing, a Christian uh, business, And he just said, no, I I don't support. I support traditional marriage. And there are all kinds of rallies being held in front of Chick-fil-A's down in California. Uh, A gay and lesbian organization of students were holding a kiss-in in in front of the Chick-fil-A. If you were here the last couple of Wednesday nights, you heard me mention that home Bible study leaders in Arizona were jailed for holding a home Bible study. Arizona. I spent the night in jail. In California, San Juan Capistrano, ten minutes from where I grew up. A couple right now is facing a $500 fine and a cease and desist order from having a home Bible study. And this is happening in our country. I read a great quote. I want to share this with you. David Guzik, uh, Pastor David Guzik, from uh, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, has a blog, and he wrote this blog called Lies About Us. Listen to what he said. Pick up just about any good book about the history of Christianity. Go to the section on persecution in the first few centuries of the Christian movement. I took a quick look through Kenneth Latourette's and Philip Schaff's works, and here's what I found. They accused Christians of hostility to the emperors and conspiracy against the state. They accused Christians of incest. They accused Christians of cannibalism. They accused Christians of being atheists. <laughs> they accused Christians of being haters of humanity. Sound familiar? They accused Christians of being the reason problems plagued the empire. That list is interesting for many reasons, especially for the twisted reasons behind these accusations. They called Christians haters of humanity simply because they didn't agree with the pagan beliefs and they didn't participate in the pagan immoralities. Yet the most interesting thing about all those beliefs and accusations is that they were not true. They were all lies. He writes, Christians were loyal, they were good citizens, who only refused to call Caesar Lord. Christians were moral, upstanding people in a culture soaked in immorality. They loved others, but refused to approve of or join with the immoralities of their age. And I read that and I thought, boy, that could be a modern commentary on the church now and on Christianity in the world today. Dear family, I just want you to understand As we do the same, as we love people but refuse to tolerate immorality, we need to know they will come after us with a vengeance. And I'm not paranoid about that. It's just the way it is. I was actually a little disappointed that I didn't get to spend the night in jail when we got the cease and desist order for the barn several years ago. And I thought that would have been cool. Have Barb bring me some soup, you know? But this is going on all around us. And it is intensifying and we have to have eyes open. But understand, it is the vengefulness of the enemy, not the vengeance of God. And I just say that because the Thessalonians thought perhaps the day of vengeance had come. Because they were experiencing this kind of trial. The whole book of Second Thessalonians talks about this. And they were struggling. And they sent word to Paul, has it come? Did we miss the rapture? Are we in the tribulation? And Paul said, no, 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 no. There are some very specific things that are going to happen first. And this is not the vengeance of God. It is the vengefulness of the enemy. And he he is out for his own vengeance. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in His name. Any suffering you have to do that is for the sake of Christ, praise the Lord. It just means you're living for Jesus. And Jesus Himself said in John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And that's the word of the Father to us. When Isaiah and the prophet spoke of this day of vengeance, the source of the vengeance was absolutely clear. It is the vengeance of our God. And by the way, the coming vengeance of our God lets lets me off the hook a little bit. What do you mean? It means I don't have to be vengeful. He's got it. I don't have to take revenge. I don't have to pay back. I don't have to seek retribution. Even just retribution, I don't have to do that. God's going to do it. Paul said very clearly in Romans 12.18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, this vengeance is the vengeance of God. But some might ask, yeah, but doesn't the Bible tell us God is love? How does that work? Well, you're right. 1 John 4 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But there's a component of love that is just as important as mercy. And you all know this. A component of love that matters. Every bit as much as grace and compassion, gang, love demands justice. Love must have justice. I love you all, but if you ever hurt my wife or kids, I am coming after you. Now some of you might be frightened by that, others might get a giggle out of that. Doesn't matter. You mess with my kids, I mess with you. You mess with my wife, I mess with you. What about forgiveness, Pastor? Oh, I'll forgive you. Once I'm done? (laughs) But as with any of us, truth is I would expect the wrong to be made right. That's that's right thinking. It is right thinking to want justice. It is right thinking to see a wrong done and say there's got to be payment for that. We're we're wired to understand the concept of justice. Justice in the universe was the very thing that caused C.S. Lewis to turn from atheism to Christianity. It turned him around. He began asking himself, I felt like the universe was so unjust so there couldn't be a God, but then he said, I thought, well, wait a minute, where did I get the idea that there was justice? A man does not call a line straight unless he has some idea of a crooked line. And so Lewis figured it out. We are hardwired to want to see justice, and it is love To see justice, just as it is love to see mercy. Love demands justice. And it's so ironic. In this age in which we live, when wrong happens, what do people do? Immediately look for blame. I saw an article just this morning. The psychologist, the counselor of the shooter in Aurora, Colorado. They're pointing out her flaws and her problems. Like as if it's her fault now. Looking for blame, looking to assign blame somewhere, the human heart cries out for justice and yet ironically recoils at the idea of a just God. God will fulfill exactly what the heart cries out for and that is a just end to all of this. And when you think about the wrongs that have been done, you think about the evils that have been perpetuated on this earth, He is going to make that right. That's justice. And love demands it. Which is why the line following the day of the vengeance of our God happens to be to comfort all who mourn. To comfort all who mourn. There is no love. There is no salvation without just vengeance. you got to have the just vengeance for love to be complete. Isaiah 35, verse 4, Say to those with the anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. And if you have ever been hurt unjustly, unfairly, guess what? God's going to take care of that. And there is a peace in knowing that. There is a sense of protection of our Father when we realize He's going to come and He's going to make the wrongs right. And there is a freedom in knowing I don't have to do that. He will cover it. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Paul writes, after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? It is the consummate message of love in the world. It is the 2,000 years of favor and grace we've had so far. It is God saying, I am coming in a vengeance. I will pay back every evil deed. However, I'm giving you 2,000 plus years to turn from that and to believe in me and to be saved from it. So great is His love. He doesn't want anybody to go through that. Love demands justice. And so the vengeance of God will come for every affliction, every broken heart, every life captured and imprisoned by sin. The justice of God, the vengeance will come. And by the way, when we get home, we will join a massive chorus. Singing and praising the Lord, Revelation 19, verse 1. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. And there will not be a single thing that he does in the day of his vengeance that anyone will say, oop, he went too far. Oh, that's not fair. Oh, that was too much. Absolutely, perfectly just. Here's the balance. I've already said it, got ahead of myself. Before. Love comes demanding justice. Love already had determined grace. He determined grace. And may it not be lost on anyone again that the day of vengeance comes after the favorable year of the Lord. The favor first. Grace first. That's where we are right now. Not fear, not vengeance, but grace. First Thessalonians 5 verse 9, this marvelous truth for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we have died or are whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Marvelous. The offer of eternal salvation comes at least two millennia before the wrath. We are still in the favorable year. What does that mean? It means today is the day to accept the grace of God. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, do it today. Because today, Jesus' hand is outstretched and He's saying, I love you, I want to save you, just believe in Me. Come trusting in Me. Well, Pastor, my Sundays are pretty busy for the next several weeks, so I don't know if I can start going to church. Did I say go to church? Accept and believe in Jesus. Walk with Him. Submit to Him. Today is the year of His favor. The day of vengeance is coming. Now I want you to remember this, Isaiah 40-66 through is the book of comfort, this last part of the book of Isaiah, these final chapters, and in these chapters we have seen over and over the Lord is seeking to comfort His people, so consider the comfort for a minute, verse 3, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. It is a godly vengeance. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we see a glad wedding. A glad wedding. There is a striking contrast in verse 3 between a funeral and a wedding. And it is, I believe, Isaiah's intention. A funeral and a wedding. Funerals are for mourning. Weddings are for gladness. Funeral mourners, especially in ancient Israel, would spread ashes on their heads. But blushing brides would wear bridal wreaths or headdresses. More on that in a minute. Funerals produce glum, sorrowful faces. The oil of gladness that's being talked about here is not an anointing oil like for the priest. The oil of gladness as described here is a light oil that's more of a cosmetic. It's for splashing on the face or on the hair, it's for reviving and and refreshing. And so the oil of gladness here, think about a bride putting on the makeup and preparing for the wedding day. Funerals tend to have a spirit of fainting and heavy. Now I've seen fainting at a wedding too, but it's for a different reason. The spirit of fainting in the the verse there, it's a spirit of heaviness. It's just that, that weight. And you feel those at funerals. Unless the person dies a believer in Jesus and though there's sorrow at their loss, there's just an amazing joy that this brother, that this sister is home with Jesus. But I've done many funerals where the person was not a believer in Jesus. And they are heavy affairs. In fact, they're there are situations where really all you can do is talk about the person's past life. you really can't get into their future. Heavy spirit of fainting, but the bride, the bride by contrast, is wrapped in a mantle of praise, a garment of praise, a wedding dress. The wedding dress is a big deal to you ladies. Cheryl and I are back this is 26 years ago this last week, we got married and I remember going with her wedding dress shopping it's not the first thing on my list to do but hey she was excited so I'll go and I'm sitting there and she's showing me all these dresses she likes and I started looking at the price tag I pulled her aside how, how many times are you going to wear this I mean I hope it's more than once are you kidding me unbelievable the wedding dress and, and thousands of dollars women spend on these things for one moment, and the groom gets his in a of tux. I mean, does that seem fair to you? And, and Jerry Seinfeld's right. He's figured out why the, the groom looks like the rest of the groomsmen. They're all in tuxes. They all look the same. It's for a practical reason. If anything happens to the groom, they can all just take one step to the right, and the ceremony continues. The wedding dress, the mantle of praise. <laughs> The garment of glory. Look down at verse 10. I talked about this Wednesday night. This is so cool. Verse 10 is a hymn that Isaiah just breaks out into as he's talking about the coming of the Lord. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And what you need to understand about that verse in pre-70 AD, so before the fall of Jerusalem, there was a Jewish wedding tradition where the bride, not the groom, but the bride wears the garland. And this verse says, and I always wondered about this, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and the bride adorns herself with jewels, but that's probably not the intention. The Hebrew word here for garland is pe'er. And pe'er in the Hebrew means a headdress, a turban, or a bonnet. How many of you grooms adorned yourself with a bonnet for your wedding? Okay, same in Israel. They were not popping the bonnet on with the cute flowers and the garland. I'm good to go, you know? Because then they would need to get rid of him and have all the groomsmen take a step to the right. Okay? So what's the deal with this whole bonnet thing? Well, the language here, along with the cultural context, indicates here, it says that he decks himself with a garland, but himself is only implied in the verse. In fact, the word himself really should be italicized because it's not there in the original Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, it's three words, as the bridegroom decks with a garland. Now you assume, oh, well, he's putting it on himself. Hold on. Hold on. The Jewish cultural context tells us, no, the bridegroom decks the bride with the garland. The bridegroom puts the bonnet or the headdress or the wedding uh, garland on the bride. He prepares her. He gives it to her. And she wears the jewels, and I think, well, that totally fits. It totally fits because the bridegroom is like, whatever, but the bride, <laughs> she gets it all. And in the spiritual understanding, game. And I'm not being sexist here, I'm being spiritual. It is God the groom who makes his bride beautiful, who adorns her, who puts the headdress on her, who wraps her in a mantle of praise, a beautiful wedding dress. Romans chapter 10, verse 3 says, Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, the Jewish people did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Righteousness, what does that have to do with the wedding dress? Well, Church of the Favorable Year, listen up. Revelation nineteen seven, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Robed in righteousness, a mantle of praise. And by the way, check this out. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 62. Another one of those stunning verses that just comes barreling out of the Hebrew prophet. He writes, "...as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you." He's talking to Israel. "...and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you." Did you hear that? As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, he's talking to Israel now, to the people of Israel. Israel and God's plan... And Isaiah says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God is going to rejoice over you. Okay, I think he's talking, I don't believe this is a metaphorical picture. I believe he's talking about Christ and the church as the bridegroom Christ rejoices over the bride, so your God, Israel, will rejoice over you. Isn't he the same God? Yes, he is. But understand, the prophet is speaking to Jewish people and he's talking to them about their relationship with God. And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, Israel has always been the wife of God, the husband. Describe that way in specific language. In fact, graphic language in Ezekiel 16. We don't have time to read it this morning. But Ezekiel 16 talks about how God found Israel in her blood. In other words, a newborn squirming and naked on the ground and picked her up and nurtured her and raised her and, and brought her up and married her as as his bride and took her as his wife. But then she went into whoring. And yet God still wants to bring her back. And perhaps that's the most stunning thing about verse 5 is note what he calls them as a young man marries a virgin so your sons will marry you and the implication of this whoring bride who's been brought back to the Lord in virginity, though she was off in adultery. As we know the bridegroom Jesus, He rejoices over the bride, the church. Ephesians 5, Revelation 19. So the Hebrew Scriptures tell us God the Father will rejoice over Israel. Same God, but with two different relationships that He's dealing with the church and with Israel. And it's a beautiful picture of a wedding back in verse 3 the mantle of praise, the oil of gladness, the garland instead of ashes. It's a bride dressed up for her wedding, comforted because her protector, her strong one has come to take care of her. He has come with a vengeance truly. Well, this leads us to the completed work of Messiah, the final result, the last part of verse 3. So they will be called Oaks of Righteousness, The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. The picture here, the oaks of righteousness, is now a picture of a people who are established and rooted in God's goodness. Strong in him, rooted deep in him, standing firm and strong and beautiful, a righteous oak. Psalm 92, verse 12 says, "...the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green." And I love that verse, because the older I get, the more sappy I get. "...to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him." And Isaiah chapter 60 verse 21 reads, Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting. The work of my hands that I may be glorified. Listen to the verse again. They will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. Why? That He may be glorified. And that is the ultimate purpose of the mission of Messiah. This is what we come down to. If you ask the big question, why? Why the whole program? Why the whole plan? Why the prophecies? Why does it lay out this way? Why a first coming? Why a second coming? Why the grace? Then the vengeance? All of this. All of the big whys come down to one simple answer with the Lord, and that is that He may be glorified. So let's review. The mission of Messiah. In the last servant song, Jesus came as the preacher, proclaiming good news to the poor. He came as the healer, bandaging wounded and broken hearts. He came as the deliverer, freeing captives from imprisonment. He came, bringing the favorable year. He came as a warrior, comes as a warrior, fierce and mighty on the day of the vengeance of our God. He comes as a comforter, Especially for those who mourn in Zion, which is the Jewish people. Why, by the way? (laughs) Keep thinking of things. Why does he come for those who mourn in Zion, but not for the church? We're already gone. Church is already out. Church is already out, and the church comes with him. With him. The church comes back with him. That bride, Revelation 17, verses 7 and 8, returning with him so he comes for those who mourn in Zion which is which is Israel as a comforter he comes as a groom replacing the funeral with a wedding jesus was never very good at funerals he couldn't let dead people lie you know
1: <laughs> and finally
0: finally jesus comes as a planter establishing his people israel like great oaks of righteousness in the kingdom for this singular purpose the godly vengeance came The glad wedding, number three, the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. His glory is key to living this life. His glory, listen, Christians, the number one thing we need to know if we're going to walk as followers of Jesus is we are about the glory of God. If you're about the glory of God, the rest is going to take care of itself. If we get eyes off of the glory of God and onto other plans, programs, things that we might be drawn to, we will get off track. You want to be aligned with the Spirit of God, you live a life that is about the glory of God. Let your light shine before men, Jesus says, Matthew 5.16, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What's the purpose of letting my light shine? His glory. What's the purpose of doing any right or good thing? His glory. Jesus says, John 15.8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and prove to be my disciples. So, if I bear fruit as a follower of Jesus, it's to His glory. And of course, Paul said, and I think the church needs to hear this desperately. 1 Corinthians 6.20, You have been bought with a price, therefore, glorify God in your body. And he's talking about your fleshly, physical self. Am I glorifying God in my body? I can glorify Him with my spirit. And with my soul, man, I can intellectually send up songs and prayers of praise. Do I glorify God with my body? Now the context that Paul says that is sexual immorality, which is as rampant in the church as it is in the world. And I'm sure it's heartbreaking to the Lord. Younger people especially, listen. Glorify God in your body. Do nothing with your physical body that would dishonor the Lord. Glorify Him. It's all for His glory. If you would be established... And I hear this. People coming up and saying, I just want to be closer to God. Glorify Him. If you would be strengthened in your faith grounded in Jesus, glorify Him. If you would walk with gladness as at a wedding, glorify Him. If you would be destined for salvation and not vengeance, glorify Him. That's the one thing you can do above all of this. Put on the mantle of praise. Let's put on the mantle of praise if your spirit is heavy. Put on praise. If you're feeling sorrowful, put on praise. If your heart is wounded, glorify the Lord. The day of the vengeance of our God is coming, but this is still the favorable year of the Lord. Amen? So glorify God with all that
1: you are.